Our passage this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 12. You heard John recite a portion of it. I'll, re- I'll read a longer portion of it this morning. We're going to talk about what it means to be good ministers. Two weeks ago, we discussed what it means to be good neighbors. Last week, good messengers. This week, good ministers. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 12, which says this. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, and those having gifts of healing, and those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. Okay. In the mid-1700s, a philosopher named Adam Smith observed that in the process of producing anything, it is much more efficient if you divide the labor so that people are able to specialize in one part of the production process. Rather than have an individual make something from start to finish, teach people to use whatever their propensities, whatever their abilities, their talents, to do one part of the job of producing something, and everyone working together can produce it more efficiently, more cost-effectively, to the benefit of everyone. Now, my wife has never read Adam Smith, But she understands division of labor because yesterday when she left to go to work, she told me, clean the kitchen before I get home. And this is how a family works. Every person has something that 
maybe he or she likes to do or does better than other people. My job in my family is to grocery shop and to cook. I like to cook. My dad cooked. I know how to cook. Other people in my family can cook. They're not that great at it. They don't like doing it. So I'm the cook. I don't like to clean floors. My wife likes for the floors to be clean. She's good at it. She does it great. My daughters, well, there's not really anything they like to clean, but they do like to watch movies on the weekends, and so that's fine with me so long as they're folding laundry while they're watching the movies. The division of labor that works in our economy works in our families. But 1,700 years before Adam Smith discussed the division of labor, Paul discussed it. And not just in this passage that I read, but in other places in the New Testament as well. In fact, it's probably the most significant, the most substantial metaphor for how the body of Christ functions. In fact, in Romans 12, we have a similar passage where Paul is explaining to Christians in Rome what the Christian life should look like. He gives this incredible ethical teaching on how we are to behave, treating one another, living in a civil society, and he lists those gifts that the body of Christ possess. And then in Ephesians 4 and 5, we get this teaching about how the family should work, the family of God, and how individual families work, where uh, Paul says that Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the family. This notion of the body of Christ works in homes as well as in churches. And then in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Christ is the head of all things, that he has supremacy, he has preeminence over everything. And here in 1 Corinthians 12 as well, those four passages explain this image of the body of Christ as a powerful way of helping us understand how it is that we were created and how that we work together as fellow ministers. So, taking this wordy passage, I've divided it into three parts. The first is this, that every person is a part. Second, every part has a purpose. Third, every purpose has value. Every person is a part. This passage I read is bookended with this idea. The very first verse, verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And verse 25, uh, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. This means that every person who has followed Christ is an indispensable, invaluable, irreplaceable part of the body of Christ. However much of an outsider you may feel, however often you might feel as though your contribution isn't valued or appreciated, however you may feel that other people have more gifts, more abilities, or contribute more to the body than you do, I just say to you that Paul sees it differently, that this passage sees it differently, that God sees it differently. You are an absolutely integral part of the body of Christ. Now, every so often my wife and I will get invited to go to some sort of social gathering, a party, a get-together, something along those lines. And my wife is an extrovert. And so her way 
is to walk into a party and to immediately become the life of the party. She will leave my side and I will not see her again until the party is over. And she will work the room. She will meet everyone in the room. She'll catch up with what's going on in their lives, know all of their problems. She understands kind of the social dynamic of the room. This is how she functions. Whereas when I walk into a social gathering, I look for the food, and there's usually like one or two guys sitting around the food table talking about football, and that's where I'll spend the next hour or hour and a half until it's time to leave, and I have to drag my wife out of the room, and when she leaves, people are sad. And when I leave, no one notices. <laughs> now, when Paul says every person is a part of the body, he means it in the sense that my wife is part of the party, not in the sense that I am. An integral, invaluable, indispensable, irreplaceable part of the body such that when you are sad, the body is sad. When you are joyful, the body is joyful. When you are separated from it, it doesn't work the same way. Every person is a part. And, number two, every part has a purpose. We have a list here that we find in 1 Corinthians 12. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracle workers, helpers, healers, administrators, people who speak in various kinds of tongues. We have a list of some additional gifts in Romans 12, service, encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy. Now, somewhere on this list is something that God has given you. Because every person is a part and every part has a purpose. Every follower of Christ has been given a gift. In fact, we sing about grace. Many of our songs this morning use the word grace. That's a word that means at its root, gift. We are given gifts to give to other people. We're given a gifting that we then gift to the body. And somewhere on this list is something God has given you. And part of our purpose is to figure out what that gift is and how can I use it best for God's purposes. Look, when you are doing what God has gifted you to do, you are the most satisfied, you are the happiest, you are the most fulfilled, the thing that you're doing feels the least like work of anything that you do. That's how you know you're doing, you're using your gift. You're working in your gifting because it doesn't feel like work at all. This is how you know you're serving because it doesn't feel like service at all. You can do it longer. You're less likely to burn out. You're better at it. Your greatest contribution to the body of Christ, to this world, is likely to be in the thing that God has gifted you to do which means that there is something God has given you, a task God has given you in this life that if you don't do it, it won't get done. There's a plan A that God has for you using your gifts in the body. There's no plan B. A task that only you can perform in the way that you perform it, using the gift that God has given you to perform it. And... There are things about yourself that you will only know when you are using that gift in the context of a community. Sure, God could teach you all sorts of things about yourself without anyone else in this room, but that's not how God has chosen to do it. He's chosen to teach you things about yourself 
by your dependency on the other people who are part of the body. And furthermore, there are things about God you will only know in relationship to other people. God could teach me directly about himself, but God instead chooses to teach me through you and you through me. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis, author, theologian, philosopher, something of a theological hero of mine, had two close friends, Charles Williams and J.R.R. Tolkien, whom he referred to as Ronald. And the three of them were part of a group called the Inklings, and the Inklings helped to shape English literature. You've read Chronicles of Narnia or seen the movies. You've probably read Lord of the Rings or seen the movies. These three incredibly influential men were close friends. In fact, Tolkien helped lead Lewis to faith in Christ. And at one point in their friendship, Charles Williams passed away. And Lewis writes that he thought Williams' death would bring him and Tolkien closer together, that it would deepen their friendship. And what he discovered was that, in fact, the opposite happened, that it didn't bring him and Tolkien closer, it actually helped to sever the friendship. It made the friendship more difficult. It made them more distant from one another. Because what Lewis learned was that there were certain things about Ronald that he only saw around Charles, and things about himself that only Charles could bring out. And those things that Charles brought out would connect with the things that Ronald would experience. And so the three of them were each deepened in their friendship by being around the other. So that when one person was removed, the relationship began to fragment. Friendship is such that when people are added to the friendship, it deepens. Communities are created so that when people are added to those communities, those communities are more vibrant and they are deeper. Family units are not lessened by addition, they're deepened and strengthened by addition. Communities work the same way, churches work the same way, countries work the same way. Two are strengthened by the addition of a third, three by a fourth. Every person is a part, every part has a purpose. God uses you to teach me and me to teach you. There's a task that needs doing. And using your gift, you can do it as no one else can. And then finally, number three, every purpose has value. Every purpose has value. There are two warnings in this passage. One is a warning against jealousy. And the other is a warning against superiority. Notice, Paul says, don't be jealous of other parts of the body. The foot should not say, I wish I were like the hand. And the ear cannot say, I wish I were like the eye. No, you need those parts of the body so that the body works as a whole. And there's a warning against superiority. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Thank goodness I'm not like you, you dirty hand. No. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. After all, this is where all the intelligence is. You know, feet, you just, you know, no. If you don't take good care of your feet, you can't get around to do the tasks that you're supposed to do. 
Paul understands this in a world where people walked everywhere they went. This analogy has even additional strength. If you look at other gifts and you say, I wish I had those gifts, or you say, thank goodness I have my gifts and not those gifts, then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the body of Christ. My wife and I sometimes go to the gym because we're pushing 50 and we have to stay in shape. And when we go to the gym, we have two different tendencies. My wife's tendency is to walk in the room and she goes upstairs to the, where all the cardio machines are and she will immediately notice the people in the room she thinks are much more fit than she is. Right? She, her eye is drawn to those people she thinks are more fit than her and she avoids them. She gets on the treadmill as far away from them as she can. Whereas I sort of do the opposite. I walk into the gym and I look at the people who seem less fit to me and I, less fit than me and I go work out near them. So my wife's tendency is to sort of feel a little bit inferior to the people around her and maybe my tendency is to feel desire to feel superior to the people around me. We have this tendency, don't we? To either look at other people and be intimidated by their gifts or look at other people and be self-inflated by our own. And Paul says, no, that's not how the body of Christ works. We need each other in ways that we don't even begin to understand. We need each and every gift in ways that we have yet to fully appreciate. And so what Paul calls for is an equality of concern. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You know how this works if you've ever had a toothache. Your entire body can be healthy and strong and fit and feel great. But if that one bundle of nerves in your jaw begins to be irritated and you get a nagging toothache, you can't think about anything else. You aren't thinking about how great your knees feel or how well rested you are. All you can think about is that pain. And you will move heaven and earth to get to a dentist who can do something to fix it. And that's how the body functions. That's how the body should function. When one part of the body is suffering, we suffer with it. When one part of the body is honored, we rejoice with it. We are in this together. Not looking at each other in jealousy or superiority, but with equality of concern. Functioning together as a whole. Each doing our part to be ministers alongside one another. I'll, tell, I'll end with this uh, illustration. Uh, years ago, I bought a microwave. And it had been a while since I bought a microwave. I was actually amazed at how inexpensive microwaves are. You can get a microwave, I think, from Walmart for like 40 or 50 bucks. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the very first microwaves that went on the market. We bought one for my mom for Christmas, and she literally wept. She was so happy. Now I think if we gave my mom uh, a microwave for Christmas, uh, she would be, you know, not quite as happy. And when, we bought, when I bought this microwave, I put it in my kitchen. It worked great for about nine months. And then the center tray stopped rotating. And so the food did not heat evenly. And so basically the microwave at that point becomes almost worthless because what good is it to have, you know, a meal where half of it is boiling lava hot and the other part is still frozen. 
So I needed to get this turntable fixed. So I took the thing apart. I took the glass tray out and I found a little plastic spindle that was a that sat right on top of the motor and one of the little prongs had broken off so that it didn't engage to the bottom of the glass tray and wouldn't spin. So I thought, well, this is simple, I'll fix it, but it, I couldn't glue it back together. It was too small of a part. And so I thought, I'll go on the website, find a part and replace it. So I, sure enough, I found the General Electric website, I found the model number of the microwave, I found a parts list with prices for every single part on the microwave, and I found this part that I needed. And guess how much it cost? Yeah, you're close, $24.99. So basically, they wanted to charge me half the price of the microwave to buy one little silly plastic part that was probably gonna break again in a few months. Of course, what they're trying to get me to do is buy a new microwave. So out of curiosity, I took the parts list and went down with a calculator and added up how much it would have cost if I'd bought every single part of the microwave individually and assembled the thing myself? $1,700. <laughs> of course, I wasn't gonna pay that. Because you see, what the company had done is overvalued the individual parts more than I wanted to pay, but undervalued the whole because I would have paid more. This is what our society tends to do. We overvalue the individual, the individuality. Be yourself, think for yourself. We, we overvalue the individual and we undervalue the importance of the whole. And Paul does the opposite because the Bible does the opposite, because God does the opposite. He values the body, he values community, he values fellowship, us in relationship with one another, being good neighbors to one another, being good messengers to our community, being good ministers in the body. Proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God, treating one another as Christ treated us, loving each other, serving each other, using the gifts God has given us for the tasks God has given us for this time, ministering to one another day in and day out as members of the body. And this is how God has created our families to work, and our church to work. We are the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we're grateful.